You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Is there ever a good time to be the United States' new ambassador to Russia? Are the Taliban, not for the first time, expecting NGOs to do all the work? And just how happy an event is a back-to-normal Chinese New Year likely to be? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Sir William Patey will discuss all the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature will recall a significant January 26th in Australia's history, but not the obvious one. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute and by Sir William Patey, a political consultant and former British diplomat. Welcome both to the Scottish Takeover edition of the Monocle Daily. <laughs> well, it's not before time. Is it? <laughs> well, when the Scots were in charge of this country, it was a much better place. So I put us back. Uh, on that subject, uh, William, we, we do need to discuss or at least further the discussion we were having shortly before the show, you attended uh, the World Cup uh, in Qatar uh, late last year. That in itself, some might consider an ethical dilemma, but you confronted an even more profound one upon arrival. It was. It wasn't whether I went to Qatar or not, whether I should support England against the USA. (laughs) And I did, in memory of my late father, who's English, so I actually have to own up to being half English, and I I did wear an England strip for the first time in my life, probably the last, in his memory. How did that feel? Because Speaking as an Australian, I would I would find that confronting. It was fine. It was lovely soft cotton, and I just uh, <laughs> just ignored the emblem. And at least they weren't playing the Scots. It wouldn't have been possible had they been playing the Scots. I'm um, right from looking at it from the inside out. <laughs> Indeed, as as, yeah. uh, I- I- Isabel, we, we have discussed your your football aversion uh, in this space many many times, um, but. Leaving that aside, are, are you mildly scandalised at all by this behaviour by a, a fellow Scot? Well, I, I can't, I can't answer to another man's conscience, but I think that it must have been a difficult moment. Uh, uh, I would think, and I trust he will spend the rest of his life atoning for this slip. We, we should make it clear to our listeners that, uh, as always, um, Isabel is adorned with St Andrew's Cross face paint. Um, but we, we will uh, move on with the show proper, uh, and there will have been few points at which starting work as the United States ambassador to Russia would not have been a daunting prospect. The very first, in fact, founding father Francis Dana of Massachusetts couldn't even persuade Catherine the Great to give him an appointment. Similar Freudier may be anticipated, perhaps even welcomed by Lynn Tracy, who arrived in Moscow today to begin her stint as Washington, D.C.'s woman in Russia. Tracy is a career diplomat who has previously served as ambassador to Armenia, done one earlier stretch in Moscow, and served postings in, among others, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan, in the latter of which she survived an assassination attempt. Um... William, she clearly doesn't scare easily, which is a good thing. Um, You have served yourself as an ambassador in places where the ambassador from this country might not necessarily be certain of a warm welcome. Uh, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, What advice would you give to somebody undertaking such an appointment? What do you do in your first week? 
Well, your first week, you probably uh, reassure the staff that you're the sort of leader they can follow. So you'll be doing a, quite a lot of that. Uh, you'll be trying to present your credentials to the president uh, as quickly as possible. Good so you luck, can good get, luck with that. So on you this can occasion. so you can get uh, get going. Most countries allow you to present a copy to the foreign minister, so it lets you get get going quickly. But she's been in Moscow. She was deputy ambassador in Moscow. She's actually served in Afghanistan as well. She was mm-hmm. there just before me. So no, she's a tough cookie. She's a career diplomat. So they're sending someone who's got all the right experience, uh, and she's dealt with the the Russians. She's a Russian speaker. Her biggest task will be to convince the Russians that they can't win in uh, in Ukraine, that the Americans will support the Ukrainians, but at the same time to reassure probably the Russians more broadly, even if she's unable to assu- uh, uh, reassure Putin, that this is not a NATO war against Russia. So she'll have a big communications job in uh, with the wider uh, intellectual uh, public mm. uh, that getting over a message to which they won't have easy access that this is not a war against Russia. Uh, this is a war of supporting Ukrainian independence, which uh, will be quite a difficult one for her. Um, uh, even I doubt she'll be able to convince Putin, but there are other people who need to be convinced. and that's uh, So it's a tricky job for her. Uh, and she'll have to give some tough messages, uh, I think, also to to Putin. You know, you think of the poor uh, April Glasby gets blamed for not giving a tough message to Saddam Hussein on the uh, on the eve of the invasion of Kuwait. But she will have to give some tough messages to to Putin. And she um, she strikes me as the sort of uh, sort of diplomat who who's capable of doing that. Um, Isabel William has already partly answered this question, which is going to be about the value of maintaining an embassy in Russia. Um, all things considered. My, my The thing I vaguely wonder about is, does maintaining an embassy in Russia allow Russia to maintain the delusion, if you will, that it is still in some way regarded as a normal country with which the rest of the world does have normal relations? And I appreciate that all countries have embassies in countries with which they do not get along. But the great international effort of the last 11 months now has been trying to communicate the idea that Russia has stepped beyond the pale. Yeah, I think the difficulty of not having an embassy is that you close off your lines of communication. Plus, it would allow Russia, and Russia's pretty good at making hay out of other people's moves, to say, look, it's obviously a NATO war because the Americans have withdrawn their their diplomatic staff Mm -hmm. or broken relations. And if they're not at war with us, why did they break relations? This is an embassy that's already down from about 1,600 people to, you know, in the hundreds. So it's a much reduced operation. I think everybody, it's not alone in that. And there are smaller embassies that have pretty much been asked to to shut down. But I think staying there, unless, unless... Russia decides to expel the last 150 people, in which case, you know, that's on Russia, is, is, is pretty sensible, honestly. Uh, William, what do you think? Is, is there value in maintaining the relationship no matter what? Um, I, I mean, thinking back in this country, it must have been considered, surely, by the UK after the, the poisonings in Salisbury, that you do it. Is this the point at which you tell the responsible country, we are done with you, pack up and clear off? Well, I'm always in favour of keeping the embassy there. You know, there's lots of pressure. There was pressure on uh, on uh, James Cleverly to respond to the killing of Ali Reza Akbari's mm. uh, execution by withdrawing our embassy. Um, I think it's important to maintain the maintain the embassy because a it gives you an insight into the thinking of 
of your adversary if it becomes your adversary. And, and that's, that's very important. It also gives you a, a window into the country and an opportunity to, to reach out. Um, so I'm, I, I think it's an obvious you know, political gesture, and sometimes it's unavoidable. I mean, I think what we did with Litvinenko and others is, is target, the, um, uh, target the expulsions against the, uh, the FSB and, and, the, the, uh, and the intelligence agencies, the people who are up to no good, as it were. Uh, I think that's always a good thing to do because the, the Russians tend to have more people here than we have there. <laughs> so, up to no good. So that's, that's, a, that's a good thing on our, on our part. But keeping open the embassies, I think it's a last resort to close your embassy. Particularly for the US, I would think. You know, mm. that's a, it's such a big power that not to be there is, is, yeah. it carries a weight. Yeah. I mean, and there are many smaller, there are variations of this all over the world. I mean, I, the other last year I met the Lithuanian ambassador to Beijing who was resident in Vilnius because they'd had their <laughs> diplomatic protection withdrawn, but she was still the ambassador. In Argentina during the Falklands War, we kept a diplomatic presence. It just hoisted the Swiss flag over the embassy and, you know, mm. uh, sailed under Swiss protection. So maintaining something, I think, is pretty much built in with the diplomatic the whole kind of diplomatic world. And the Americans, the Americans lament the fact that they've never been able to have an embassy for obvious reasons in Tehran for, for the last 40 years. Yeah. You know, they've, they've, they've had to rely on others to, to, to help them understand the uh, uh, what's going on. And just a final quick thought on this one, William. You would, you would have a better idea than most uh, as to what her day-to-day life is going to be like. How easy is it going to be to live as a US ambassador in Russia right now? Um, well, she she'll be under constant surveillance. She'll hmm. be she probably well, by, by her own people as well as by Russians. Well, no, I wouldn't be worrying about her own people, but you know, the, some of the surveillance that you experience in Russia is quite intrusive, and some hmm. of it's deliberately obstructive. I mean, I, I know diplomats, Russian uh, British diplomats in, in in Russia, who have been harassed. You know, woken up every hour uh, on the hour. You know, there's a sort of harassment element of it. She will have to operate under very strict uh, rules of secrecy, uh, but the American embassy is well equipped for all that. She'll she'll know where she can have a conversation and where she can't have a conversation. Uh, it'll be a very strange existence, um, uh, but uh, uh, the Americans will, you know, they have means of making sure they've got you know, the, the comforts of the world. A diplomatic bag is still a very useful thing in these circumstances. <laughs> uh, well, to Afghanistan, uh, one of William's former postings, where reports suggest that the Taliban are tentatively considering upgrading the status of Afghanistan's women from the utterly abject to the merely wretched. New guidelines will apparently permit some Afghan women to work in humanitarian roles, though it is not entirely clear yet how this will square with last month's edict specifically forbidding women from, from working for NGOs. This seems an echo of the 1990s vintage Taliban, which also grudgingly allowed small numbers of Afghan women to perform roles in which the Taliban were either uninterested or horrified by, e.g. anything much involving female health or the welfare of children. Um, Isabel, are we buying this at all? I very much doubt that they will change the rules. They may ignore them or choose to ignore them 
Um, but actually to change the rules, I think, is that there, there are clearly very hardline elements who wouldn't allow that. So the fudge would be the best, I think, that you could get. And that fudge still exposes people to enormous risk, particularly the women. I mean, any mm. woman can be picked up off the street and, you know, accused of whatever. Um, so it's a deeply, deeply uncomfortable situation. But equally, if they have any responsibility towards a population which is clearly, you know, suffering a lot, they will have to find some means of, of, of making this work. Because without women working in NGOs, you can't access half the population. You know, they won't, they won't be able to, to, you know, the men won't be able to deal with them. So it's, it's a horrible situation. And I'm, you just have to hope that they, they understand how perilous the, the circumstances are and find a way of, of making it work. A formal agreement? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, William, it is a brutal calculation, but does the current misery of Afghanistan circumstances give the NGOs any actual leverage over the Taliban? By some estimations, the biggest humanitarian effort of all time is required in Afghanistan. 28 million people are dependent on aid, 6 million people verging on starvation. This has been a terrible, terrible winter. Um, is there any way at all at which the Taliban can have it said to them, you need to come some of the way here in return for all this help you need? Well, we had hoped that that would be the situation. Uh, some of the, the, the some development assistance was being held out, humanitarian assistance was was being delivered by NGOs, but development assistance was was being held out as a as a lever to, for the Taliban to adopt a, a rather more liberal approach to women than they've previously done, you know, allow women to work, allow women to go to school. But all we've seen is a hardening of their position mm. uh, amongst the... Uh, there are some people who say there are the, the fighters, the younger fighters are much more open to the idea of a uh, softening of that. But I haven't seen much, and they're not calling the shots, and I haven't seen much of that. But we have seen, I, I chair a, uh, an NGO which is operating in Afghanistan, and we have seen some uh, pragmatism at the fringes. Uh, our female teachers have, have been uh, are working in our primary school. Our female doctors are working in our clinics. We have weavers, we have women who weave and making carpets, mm. and, and they are still working. That's the turning the blind eye. That's bit. the turning the yeah. blind eye, and indeed, in in in, in some of the provinces, uh, the, the, there is a there is a sort of recognition that these the, the, this is necessary for their livelihoods and doing things that the Taliban don't object to. Uh, so that, but but that's not enough. You know, it, uh, Afghanistan is facing the biggest uh, catastrophe going. I just don't think the Taliban have even begun to appreciate the scale of the task that the the Afghanistan that they inherited, the the size of the population, the urbanisation of the population, mm. they have not begun to assess. Uh, or understand the, uh, the how Afghanistan has changed and how you run a modern economy, even one as poor as Afghanistan. So, I fear we're going to we're going to the Taliban are going to sleepwalk into a horrific catastrophe, and I'm not quite sure what the what the international community are going to be able to do about it, other than. Uh, press for access of UN agencies, of NGOs and all of that to address it. But I feel it's going to get a lot worse. It's already pretty bad. I mean, all that being said, Isabel, are there any other options? Because this is not for the first time in human history, one of those situations where the NGOs, the aid organisations confront the dilemma uh, You know that as well as helping the population, are we actually 
helping their tormentors stay in power. Well, that that has been the key dilemma, and that and we. We should remember that the United States has, has frozen $9.5 billion mm-hmm. in Taliban funds or Afghan funds. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, because they won't recognize the regime, it's under sanction. Now, I, I completely understand why that is. And they don't want to acknowledge the Taliban as the legitimate government. Nevertheless, you know, the people are starving. So that's a moral question for the United States as well. And it's a really difficult one. But I think if we're looking at the at the kind of general moral framework here, you know, this is an emergency. And and uh, I think some there could be some give there if, if the United States was disposed to relax. I don't know, William, what you think about Well, the, the U.S. did release over $3 billion yes. for humanitarian assistance. But frankly, I think they need to... Well, however painful it is and however distasteful it is, Afghanistan needs a banking system. Precisely. Uh, and I think the other six billion should be, you know, frankly, uh, should be released so yeah. that the, the, the Taliban can get, get, the Afghan state can get a banking system up and running yeah. because that, that would create the circumstances mm. for private enterprise, for the Afghans who are very enterprising people yeah. to do things for themselves. So I think the humanitarian crisis is so great that there's a there's a limit. I know the argument. If, why why would you facilitate them? But actually, the 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 the, the alternative is just too horrendous to contemplate. And the economy can't get it can't recover w- mm. without without some give on that. It can't recover under sanctions. It can't recover unless funds are released. I mean, my experience of sanctions, of which I have a great deal in Sudan and Iraq and Afghanistan, is that sanctions tend to uh, strengthen regimes rather than weaken them. Uh, I actually think that if you if if you let but not th- economies, not economies, but if you let a thousand flowers boom, then uh, a regime like the Taliban wouldn't be able to resist uh, the, the movements that would be generated in in, in Afghanistan. It makes it easier for people to organise and to uh, to to uh, oppose uh, and to do other things. At the moment, it's very very difficult for them. Just a final quick thought on this one, William. How big uh, an, an additional problem is the world's now relative lack of interest in Afghanistan compared to most of the last 20 years? Because I think it was very much the case thinking back to the 1990s, and I did report briefly from uh, Taliban 1.0's Afghanistan, that really apart from a few journalists uh, seeking an easy win, nobody really cared about Afghanistan before September 11th, 2001. And they don't care about it anymore. I think, you know, uh, the, the Biden administration washed its hands of it. They're not really engaged much. The British British government doesn't seem to, to be actively involved. I mean, it's not just Afghanistan. You look at mm. the Middle East. There's not much engagement in the Middle East either. Uh, all the sort of international energy that seems to be expended is all on Ukraine. I mean, obviously, it's a hot war and it's in Europe. Uh, and in uh, the, the, the coming challenge of China over Taiwan, I mean, that's where all the energy in in the international affairs market is at the moment and uh, Afghanistan only comes on the headlines when you've got you know refugees and uh, stories about people who've been abandoned there's human human interest stories come but the actual uh, the, the actual, I don't get the I don't get the impression that the, there's meetings in capitals between all the various uh, all the various uh, foreign ministries to say what are we going to do about Afghanistan I don't see that activity
Well, speaking of China, in pre-pandemic times, around this point on the calendar would reliably see one of the greatest migrations in human history, as umpty zillion Chinese people went on holiday or back home or both during the Spring Festival which heralds China's New Year, and a happy and prosperous Year of the Rabbit to our Chinese listeners. After a few years of enforced New Year's staycations, China is back on the move, with bookings of hotels and tourist attractions actually outstripping those of 2019. This is doubtless good news for China's economy. It remains to be seen what it does for China's public health. Um, Isabel, this is, is it not, final confirmation that the Communist Party has just given up where COVID is concerned? Absolutely. You know, yeah. <laughs> party, party, everyone. You know, this is, this is uh, yeah, COVID, uh, COVID uh, restrictions. What COVID restrictions? I mean, it, you have to pinch yourself to remember that just the, the eight weeks ago, you know, you couldn't move out of your front door or your town or your your province without the right code on your phone. And it's just all gone. And what that means is that, you know, of course, everyone then got COVID in the cities. Mm. And now all those people have gone to rural areas where they came from, or large numbers have gone to rural areas where they came from, where there are almost no medical facilities and a lot of old people. So it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's going to be pretty rough, I think. Uh, Just to follow that up, Isabel, what do we know for sure about the current COVID situation in China? Almost nothing. I mean, nothing reliable. The, the, the official figures of death rates, they're, they're no longer attributing most of the deaths to COVID. So the official death rates are in the tens of thousands. All the plausible, credible projections based on the experience of Hong Kong and elsewhere was that they would be over a million uh, in, in the first wave. Uh, we probably won't know till the next census, honestly. And you can see, you know, you can track mm. larger, uh, larger population uh, movements, but um, frankly, the even the WHO, which has on the whole been rather polite about China, is saying we this you know we need more information. It's just not reliable. Uh, William, has has the Communist Party basically calculated that at this point, China's people would be even more annoyed by further restrictions than they would be discombobulated by an upsurge in illness? Yes, I think there were strong indications coming out of China that the Chinese had had enough of zero COVID. And I mean, even as you say, eight weeks ago, they were closing down a, a whole city again uh, because uh, because there were a few cases. I saw a statistic by some uh, Chinese National Science Institute that said 80% of the Chinese had already had COVID, which seemed it just it just adds to the confusion because if if you have a zero covid policy and they've only had 10,000 deaths it seems inconceivable that 80 percent of the chinese population could have had covid but that was a that was another uh, another uh, sort of you don't know what to make of that, but it was coming out of a national science uh, science institute in, in China, and I thought well, these these two things don't don't assimilate. Uh, but I think the, the reality is that uh, the Chinese population were not prepared to bear. Uh, this these restrictions that very much longer and the economy was suffering. So I think it's uh, a degree of pragmatism, which I have to say the Chinese Communist Party has adopted over many <laughs> over many decades. I mean, they couldn't afford it any longer. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the damage it was doing to the economy. It was the sheer cost of all that testing. And mm-hmm. we were beginning to see provinces not being able to pay their bills because if you have mm-hmm. to test every single day when you've got, you know, two asymptomatic cases, then you're, you're really, you know, you're just pouring money 
into what had become a massive industry. Now that massive industry has closed down and they're protesting. So the, all the people in those white hazmat suits who were, you know, part of the army of enforcement are now out of work and demanding their back wages and, you know, protesting themselves. So it's been very rocky. I mean, uh, Isabel, it's, it, I mean, it's probably too soon to know how and to what extent COVID has changed the country from which we are broadcasting. But do we get any sense at all of how it might have changed China? I think it's, I mean, apart from the protests, which mm. I think were pretty instructive not just because of what they said about COVID, what they said about everything else it, mm. it, at the same time. I thought that that was, that was pretty interesting. Now what you're hearing is, you know, what did they do for that three years to prepare for this moment? And clearly not enough. So I think that what a number of things have changed quite profoundly, uh, I think that there's been a loss of confidence in the authorities and their competence. And that's, you know, the population. It's also, I think, outside observers. And they'll try to make that up. But a lot of economic damage has been done. And there's no easy recover recovery from that. They'll get a bit of an exit bounce. But the profound problems in the economy are, are not going to be solved easily. And so they're going to have to come up with a new story about why you should trust the Communist Party going forward, when this has done quite a lot of damage to that image. I think it brings a moment of danger as well, of course, because you've got you've got uh, Xi who's consolidated his power at the top. You've got all this unrest, and we don't know what will happen. You know, they, as Isabel said, they didn't use the opportunity to vaccinate everybody. They, you know, they, they, and the the, the 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 Chinese vaccination deemed not to be particularly effective. But you've got a moment where, if there is this growing unrest and the economy is is uh, is is not performing, is this the moment that Xi goes for a diversion, uh, and that's that's that the the worry. That is yeah. the worry that he, he thinks that the, in a year or two's time, now is the moment to uh, to rally the Chinese people by recovering Taiwan. So there's a, there's a moment of danger coming up, I think. Well, on that cheery thought, uh, William Patey and Isabel Hilton, we will have more from you both shortly. But first, this. Brazilians are very creative when it comes to names. It's common to see people with names like Mozart, or even Valdisney, which is some sort of tribute to the late Walt Disney. Valdisney, get it? Unlike many countries, our registry offices are quite flexible when it comes to names. And you know what? Many Brazilians might disagree with me, but I really don't mind. It's part of our culture in a way. It's not boring. Just look at the names of a Brazilian football team anytime always with excellent nicknames or tribute names like the great Socrates in the 80s. Interestingly enough, even among the invaders of the Brazilian Congress earlier this year, we can find some crazy names. There was even a Dieter Marx. It's all a bit mad, really. So it's with surprise that I read the news that renowned Brazilian singer Seu Jorge decided to name his son Samba. But the decision was rejected by São Paulo's registry office. They said it was an unusual name. I mean, come on. First of all, Samba is a beautiful name, a tribute to the beautiful music genre that Brazil is known for. And our registry offices have allowed 188 Hitlers currently living in Brazil. So why not Samba? Yes, I do understand that it's good to be flexible, but a rejection of a few names might be in the best interest of a child. Hitler, for example. 
But Brazil would be so much more boring if we only had a pre-made list of names that are allowed. As for my kid in the future, although I don't mind a bit of samba, I might go for electro. Dancing, dancing to the real for Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hundred and eighty-eight Hitlers uh, in Brazil uh, is 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 something we've learned there. I, I was many years ago before the the particular trip went somewhat off schedule due to meet a, a Cameroonian politician whose first name was Hitler, and I, I had I had intended to ask him how that came about. Like I, I vaguely wondered if perhaps. His parents had happened across volume one of an autobiography and been inspired by this story of a, a World War One decorated World War One hero who reinvents himself as a, a respectable watercolorist and maybe spent the rest of their lives wondering what became of him after that. <laughs> who knows? If we ever find volume two, the mystery will be solved. Um, we, we did want to ask, uh, clearly the, the three of us at this table, um, Isabel, William and Andrew, had parents sorely lacking in imagination, but but. Have you run across anywhere uh, people who struck you as having particularly inspiringly interesting names? I'm afraid not. The, Bra the Brazilians have it hands down. I come from a family where every firstborn son was called William, so we are really boring. <laughs> and I spent most of my life in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area where you were either called Mohammed if you were, or if you were really adventurous Abdullah or if you were a Shia Ali. So uh, I've not been anywhere where there's been uh, where, the, where people have encouraged them to, to uh, go off piste uh, with names, I'm afraid. Isabel? Well, I have met quite a few Lenins, but no Stalin. Um, and I did meet a young man in Cuba once who was called Elvis, and he couldn't understand why everybody smiled when he said his name because he didn't know who Elvis was. But the thing that I do come across is um, the Chinese, of course, take names terribly seriously because mm. they have meaning and, you know, they have, to, they have to carry this sort of good fortune. But when Chinese start to choose foreign names, they can go a bit off-piste sometimes with things that sound as though they're going to be okay. So you get, you know, things like lucky and that's fine. But I I was, had to explain to a young woman who had called herself Algi that actually, <laughs> although it sounded pretty, it was green slime and she was quite distressed. So the companies, I mean, companies, I remember Exxon, the story of Exxon, in which they had to try and find a name that didn't mean something awful in some other language. You know, that's why Exxon was chosen. It was it apparently didn't mean anything derogatory in any language, having gone through all sorts of things that meant crap or <laughs> versions of it. <laughs> I, as a, a keen fan of American football, as I am, I, I would, I mean, there's you, you could go all day on this, but I, I would like uh, to give a shout out to the St. Brown family. That is, of course, Equinemius St. Brown of the Green Bay Packers, his brother Amon Ra, St. Brown of the Detroit Lions, uh, and their younger brother Osiris, who regrettably was not drafted, despite being what I thought was a fairly handy-looking wide receiver while at Stanford. And a great god. <laughs> well, indeed so. Uh, Sir William Patey and Isabel Hilton, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, finally, on today's show, today's date, January 26th, is the most vexed on the Australian calendar. It is Australia Day anniversary of the date in 1788, on which 11 boatloads of seasick shoplifters flying Britain's flag were sailed into what is now Sydney Harbour, inaugurating a new nation and substantially dooming an established culture. The annual row over the proprietor of celebrating Australia Day, however, tends to occlude another significant January 26th in 1808. Here's the latest instalment of On This Day. 
Dedicated listeners, like there are any other kind, to these calendar-linked lectures may recall that we used last April 28th to reflect on the events aboard one Royal Navy cutter on that day in 1789, the insurrection that became legendary as the Mutiny on the Bounty. We mentioned, as you will doubtless recall, towards the end of that instalment that it was not the last such revolt faced by HMS Bounty's defenestrated captain, William Bly, as rendered here by Anthony Hopkins. Mr Cole, take this man below, and tomorrow we will assemble to watch him receive punishment for cowardice and insubordination. Mr Cole, take him below, sir. To that extent, the HMS Bounty on this day was kind of a prequel to this one, which we'll consider January 26th, 1808, a day which Bly must have spent much of thinking, bloody hell, not again. By 1808, Bly's reputation had substantially recovered from the Bounty debacle. He had been acquitted by a court-martial, and three of the mutineers who had been subsequently captured had been hanged. Bly's navigation of the Bounty's tiny launch containing himself and 18 loyal sailors on an unimaginable 47-day journey to Timor was widely admired. There had been a bit of a thing in 1797 when sailors mutinied in the Thames anchorage of Noor, including aboard Bly's ship HMS Director, but that wasn't really about Bly personally. There had been another court-martial which was about Bly personally, specifically the untowardly nautical language he was said to have directed at one of his sailors, but he'd escaped with a reprimand. Bly had been given new commands and had acquitted himself with distinction, personally praised by Admiral Horatio Nelson, no less, for his handling of HMS Glatton at the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. In 1806, Bly was commissioned as the fourth governor of New South Wales. The penal colony of New South Wales had been established 20 years to the day before the events described in this lecture, and its 7,000 or so European inhabitants, very much including its troops, were an unruly crew, certainly far too much so for a man of Bly's famously disciplinarian inclinations. The New South Welsh economy had debased to the point that pretty much the only universally accepted currency was Bengali rum, and the rum trade had long been monopolised by the local detachment of the British military. The regiment first raised as the New South Wales Corps had become locally and derisively known as the Rum Corps. Bly resolved to turn these uniformed bootleggers back into soldiers of the king. This, however, meant taking on the real power in the land. John MacArthur, former British soldier turned prosperous merchant, pioneering grazier, general pain in everybody's neck, and still de facto commanding officer of the Rum Corps. MacArthur had picked and mostly won squabbles with all previous governors, and the only thing he found in common with Bly was a pathological aversion to backing down. MacArthur ignored and or goaded the new governor to the point that Bly ordered him arrested for his refusal to pay a fine for some or other infraction. On January 26, 1808, MacArthur's loyalists in the Rum Corps struck. <laughs> Thank you.
Commanded by MacArthur ally Lieutenant Colonel George Johnston, the Rum Corps marched on Government House, followed by hundreds of spectators greatly enjoying the show, and found Bly, according to legend and to what is often acknowledged as the first political cartoon in Australian history by a regrettably anonymous artist, hiding under the bed. The Rum Rebellion shook out pretty wretchedly for most of its protagonists. Bly, once back in England, was promoted Rear Admiral, but never held another command. Colonel Johnston was court-martialed and cashiered. MacArthur escaped legal retribution, but removed himself to England until the dust settled, not returning to New South Wales until 1817. He eventually ended up adorning the Australian $2 note in recognition of his founding of the Australian wool industry, though his wife, Elizabeth, did most of the work while he seethed in exile. Of the Governor of New South Wales who eventually succeeded Bly, Lachlan Macquarie, it needs merely be noted how difficult it is to travel any great distance in Australia now without encountering something named after him. Coups d'etat rarely improve the standard of governance. The Rum Rebellion did, if not how the plotters intended. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Sir William Patey, also to Fernando Augusto Pacheco for his rumination on Brazilian names. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Music